Hello, honeys. Welcome to 2024. Welcome to season two slash year two of the Highbrow Podcasting. Very exciting to be back. I apologize to any of you who were waiting for new episode drops in January. Unfortunately, as much as I enjoyed providing a ton of new content for the holiday month of December, that weekly release schedule seriously burned me out. It's just not sustainable for me as the current do-it-aller of Highbrow Honey, and so I needed January to be sort of my holiday month to get some R&R, to, you know, work back up to not being incredibly intimidated by the mere thought of editing the podcast. Which brings us to two things. Number one, thank you again for your continued support, your patience, your little likes and comments on Instagrams, and your comments even to me in person. It's just been wonderful to know that I'm not speaking into the void that people actually care and are listening. But then part two, because a weekly schedule is not sustainable and an every other week schedule is frankly not enough work for this busybody, I have landed somewhere in the middle. We're going to try out something new and I really hope that this is the last time we have to edit the drop schedule for this podcast. Every Tuesday, beginning next week, the 13th, we will be dropping a 10-minute briefing of Art World news, events, major up-and-comings, major shakeups that I think are worth taking a look at, paying some attention to. And every other Thursday, we will continue with our focused, sort of deep-dive, half-hour-ish long episodes. All right, so with the updates, the housekeeping, and the welcome backs all done, we're gonna go ahead and go with an episode that was due to be released in January, but as I said, life and, you know, I am only human. So, we're going to look today at the portrait of Madame X by John Singer Sargent, why it was such a scandal in its day, what its legacies are like now, and how Madame Goutreau, aka Madame X, has become an icon beyond herself over the years. Let's get started. As a student scarred by the American education system, of course I am going to start by citing my sources lest I be accused of plagiarism, the ultimate downfall. First, we have Alan Chong as the editor, at least, of Madame Gautreau Drinking a Toast, 1882-1883, through 1883, a chapter from Eye of the Beholder, published by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Shout out to the ISGM as a former feature on the podcast, and I would like to consider a friend of the honeys. We also have Alina Cohen's Why Madame X Scandalized the Art World, appearing in Artsy.net as of April 2019. Justine DeYoung's 1884 John Singer Sargent Madame X Virginie Gusteau from, wait, 
Gusto. Can you tell I watched Ratatouille lately? Should be. 1884, John Singer Sergeant, Madam X, Virginie Gautreau. <laughs> From the Fashion History Timeline, produced by the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, and updated August of 2018, the exhibition webpage for the Fashioned by Sargent exhibit going on at the Museum of Fine Art in Boston from October 2023 to January 2024. Unfortunately, I was not able to find exact dates on that, but if you can get in to see it, I highly, highly recommend you do, and I will also be highly, highly jealous of you. Next up, we have Meg Florian's entries, uh, both under the same title, John Singer Sargent, Madame X, parentheses, Madame Pierre Gautreau, appearing both in Can Academy and Smart History, though only the Smart History version is dated as of August 2015. We also have the Tate Museum's webpage for the work John Singer Sargent, Study of Mademoiselle Gautreau, circa 1884, no byline on that one, dated 2016, and I decided to include it because it is another example of their partnership, their collaboration, and thus can be used to make comparisons and kind of understand why he draws her the way he does at certain times. Of course, as owners, the Metropolitan Museum of Art has a webpage dedicated to the artwork under the title of Madam X. No byline on it, but I, I highly doubt anyone at the Met is just making stuff up, so we're going to go with it. We also have Dorothy Mahone and A. Sentineau's Revealing Madame X, which is a, an in-depth study of the work, also published by the Metropolitan Museum of Art, available on their website. And finally, Susan Sidlowskis's Painting Skin, John Singer Sargent's Madame X, published by the University of Chicago Press Journals, Volume 15, Number 3. It always helps to have an idea of who exactly we're talking about in these stories. So, let's review our main characters, so to speak. Our story begins with two bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, want-to-be-society members, one a model and one an artist. Of course, the artist is John Singer Sargent. Born in Italy in 1856, he was technically an American because his father was, and, you know, those grandfathered-in citizenship roles, though he did live most of his life abroad. Though they were pretty firmly middle class, never wanted for anything, the mother always wanted even better for her son. So Sargent, as an even younger man, attended a very fancy and reputed Parisian atelier. Then he enters a portrait of one of his friends into a lower key kind of crowd-selected, biggest applause wins version of the Salon of 1877, has great success there, and begins a steady business of portraits of upper-class women. However, he remains preoccupied with success, especially throughout his early career, in the form of representation across the great museums of America, especially the Metropolitan. Next, Madame X herself. Born Virginie Amélie Avegno in Louisiana in 1859, she was a socialite, a parasite or a Kim K of her day. 
She married a very successful New Orleans banker, and that kind of introduced her into French society, as he was pretty regularly over there for business. And according to the Met, was, quote, known in Paris for her artful appearance, end quote. The artful appearance they're referencing there is a bluish, violet-toned makeup that she covered herself in, which is kind of reflected in the skin tones of the painting. According to rumor, she dyed her hair an auburn reddish kind of tone via henna and used a, quote, chlorate of potash powder, end quote, or else some kind of maybe rice powder over her fair-toned skin to achieve this unusual color effect. Fashionable women of the day also ingested arsenic, of all things, to lighten their skin. It's possible she did this too. Whatever chemicals she used, however, didn't seem to shorten her life too much as she passed in 1915. Goutreau's mom kind of becomes another minor character in this story. She inserts herself as the most offended, the most scandalized by the results of her daughter's portrait and its extremely negative reception. That poor reception comes from French society, so we can include the masses as a sort of conglomerate character. And it is at this point that we get into Collaboration Nation, why they decide to do it, and how it goes. Spoiler alert, not terribly well. (laughs) Like many up-and-coming musicians, they decide to do a collab because they are hoping for a mutually beneficial result. Both are looking to enhance their own fame and reputation through the use kind of of the other's fame and reputation. So again, this collaboration is all about mutually beneficial results that they are hoping for. But they also have more specific uh, motivations related to being a model or an artist. She is also looking to be cemented as an art historical muse, as a beauty worthy of representation for all time. And Sargent is hoping to broaden his audiences and get into the French social scene a little bit. So the Met, again, confirms that he wants to heighten his reputation. But they also note that he worked without a commission, just the model's okay. And supposedly he did this because he wanted the satisfaction of mastering the challenge and wanted to achieve his own sort of Mona Lisa masterpiece, even if it meant that there was no financial benefit to it. Cohen notes, however, that he still had to talk her into it a little bit. Quote, in her 2003 book, Strapless, Deborah Davis asserts that Sargent launched a full campaign to convince Gautreaux to sit for him, enlisting multiple mutual acquaintances in his request, end quote. This convincing and hunting her down really sets and encapsulates the whole tone of their partnership as, much more often than not, Gautreaux was an elusive model in ways that Sargent didn't necessarily expect. As I keep hinting at, artist and model here were not peas in a pod. 
Though Gautreaux and Sargent have enough success to complete a few works during their time together, none end up as famous as Madame X. Some of these include studies for the painting of Madame X, several other sketches of her by Sargent, and even some works by his contemporaries who she modeled for. But as I stated in the sources, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum has one called Madame Gautreaux Drinking a Toast, 1882-1883 through 1883 by Sargent, and there are some important similarities between that work and Madame X, which speak to not only the way Sargent thought she should be captured, but the way Gautreaux liked to present herself. The most important similarities between the two include an emphasis on the bright redness of her nostrils, lips, and ears. Of course, the same violet and bluish tones to represent her own application of makeup throughout the body, especially to create shadows on the neck and arms. And also that in both works, she appears fully in profile with one arm extended somewhat dramatically and a very flexed neck. So it's clear that this sort of languid, confident, like royalish self-possession that Gautreaux portrays, that's very much a characteristic of hers that, that defined her so very much that Sargent thought it was worth infusing both portraits with this attitude. And so did his contemporaries. And of course, it also speaks to just how fascinating Sargent found her tones and her application of makeup, that he tried so hard to capture it just so in both the 1883 work as well as Madame X. One thing that I kept discovering as I was researching for this episode is I kept running into descriptions of Gautreaux as a difficult model. And any time that a woman is referred to as difficult, little red flags go up in my brain. Because usually that just means that she's smart or confident or, like, you know, has a backbone. So it could be one of those things. It could be that she was a little... Spoiled. The world may never know. In any case, Cohen points to a 1987 Chicago Tribune article about the collaboration stating that Gautreaux wouldn't be painted in Paris and made Sargent wait until she and her spouse were comfy in their Brittany country estate to really begin work. Gautreaux was, though, known for being restless in general, which made any laying position completely impossible to capture her in. She always had to be at least somewhat upright. And furthermore, she was unused to being posed by others. So it may have been very uncomfortable for her to try and take directions that way. She may have been frustrated by that experience, which made it harder for both sides. She also did frequently ditch out to maintain her social calendar, but like girls gotta live. <laughs> it's possible that this was just a clash of two hard heads because Sargent was also a perfectionist who liked working long, and I do mean long, like six to eight hour long sessions. And 
was insistent on capturing his idea of the sitter's personality. So overall, him and Gautreaux were just not very compatible. Cohen says he once, quote, wrote to his friend, the writer Vernon Lee, inner quotes, your letter has just reached me, still in this country house, struggling with the unpaintable beauty and hopeless laziness of Madame Gautreaux, and all quotes. So as much as he admired her steadfastness to her own style, it was as hard for him to let go as it probably was for her. The MFA Boston says, quote, Sargent brought his subjects to life, but he did much more than simply record what appeared before him. He often chose what his sitters wore, and, even if they arrived in his studio dressed in the latest fashions, he frequently simplified and altered the details. Exploiting dress was an integral part of his artistry, end quote. So especially for a woman who liked to pose herself, the clothing uh, arguments probably were also very taxing. The MFA Boston argues that the liberties taken by Sargent are quote-unquote sartorial choices to communicate the unique personalities, social positions, gender expressions, professions, etc. of each of his models. And they think that Sargent really truly believed that an element of a sitter's dress could communicate more about them than nearly anything. The MFAB quotes him saying once to Graham Robertson, the coat is the picture, which clearly articulates the role dress plays in his work in their eyes. So in all actuality, sounds to me like maybe they were both difficult, especially with this quote from the Met. Sargent worked with obsessive intensity to capture the exotic, even bizarre appearance of Madame Gautreaux. Sargent described her as having the most beautiful lines and skin of a uniform lavender or blotting paper color all over, and all quotes. He makes tons of sketches of her, now owned by many Western museums, but he struggled through the work in terms of color, which we'll get to in a second, but also beyond that. Various primary sources have confirmed that Sargent made lots of changes to the work before finalizing, and the Met actually, in 1995, used various x-ray and infrared scanning technology to reveal some of these specific changes. They say, quote, the x-radiograph of the head reveals numerous adjustments to the profile, a significant shift in the position of the ear, and changes to the positions of the arms, end quote. I've included a couple of these images in our visual episode, so you can see exactly what they're talking about there. What's kind of fascinating about this story is the technical issues that arise. Half the reason that Sargent wanted to do a portrait specifically of Gautreaux was because of that uniquely colored bluish-violet makeup that she used all over her skin. But that color becomes a real frustration for him instead of a beneficial exploration in the painting like he expected. The core of the color problem really is that that blue tinge to Gautreaux's skin was her own accentuating aesthetic choice designed for artificial evening light. So the social events where she would likely 
see and be seen where she would want to appear as a very ethereal kind of uh, standout beauty. However, Sargent was painting in outdoorsy summer lighting, and this becomes a visible point of struggle within the work. His attempts to capture not only the ethereal-ness of that blue tinge in the lighting it was designed for, but also to accurately depict the color that he was seeing in real time in that summer lighting. Sargent's inability to reconcile those two appearances of this color tone just eats at him to the point where he almost entirely turns on her. Zilauskas says, quote, the artist's own pronouncement of his model as unpaintable distills his resistance to imaginatively and structurally merging his pigments with the cosmetics they constructed on the canvas. A refusal matched by Gautreaux's own opposition figured not only in her skin, but her flexed body as well, end quote. So the two kind of really become centered on this point of contention, which is her makeup and her posing. Gautreaux does not want to give it up. Sargent wants to control it. And they cannot reach a compromise here. One kind of interesting note is that Gautreaux's makeup was considered a part of her very dramatic socialite performance. It was meant to increase her sense of otherworldliness, her sense of mystery, and that's different from how we think about makeup today, where Gautreaux was trying to look as unnatural, yet still intriguing as possible. Makeup today acts, I think we could say, a little bit more like a quote-unquote false face, to use Sidlaskis's own words. And by that I mean, today the goal is to look natural. The goal of makeup is to look like it's not there, to mimic and cover and present a secondary, more perfect surface. That was not the case with Gautreaux. Hers was to create an even more unbelievable surface. And so the evolution of makeup that we can see there is, a, is an interesting point of the portrait of Madame X. Finally, though, the painting is finished. Their partnership comes to an end. It is officially titled Madame X, in parentheses, Madame Pierre Gautreaux, and is dated 1884. It is an oil work on canvas, slightly smaller than life size, with the work measuring about 6.75 feet tall and about 3.5 feet wide. Because Sargent was in the habit of photographing his works, we have evidence of the portrait exactly as it appeared in the salon, as well as the changes made after its debut. Again, these are going to be included in the visual episode for your reference. According to the Met, in the final portrait, he, quote, emphasized her daring personal style, showing the right strap of her gown slipping from her shoulder, end quote. All their high hopes for this collaboration are dashed because this portrait turns out to be an instant disaster for both of their reputations. Gautreaux was seen as a corpse-like or seriously ill-looking promiscuous woman, and Sargent as a painter of ugly things. And there's a couple theories as to why precisely it failed so much. And we'll, we'll talk through a couple of them here. 
Cohen puts forth that there was one, the quote unquote lewd shoulder exposure, but then two, the whole thing was just seen as tacky. And Florian and De Young have thoughts about this. Though that strap the, that had fallen down on the one shoulder in the original version of the work had the intention of showing Gautreaux's daring personality, it was absolutely received as a symbol of her loose sexual morals by viewers of the day when she was already rumored to be a cheater. Florian says that this neckline was relatively plunging per the day, so, you know, too much boobs, cover them up. <laughs> and De Young says that while it wasn't actually all that plunging for the day, the bigger social faux pas here is that Gautreaux does not use the fan in her uh, extended arm to cover up said cleavage. So it's that she chose not to use her instrument of modesty that's the problem, more so than the construction of the dress. Florian also says, though, that it was tacky. It mixed this golden age desire to communicate status and wealth, often by making reference to classical traditions, with a more contemporary and risque style, and the two just did not mesh. So some of these older classical traditions we can see are the foundations of the hairstyle in ancient Greek kind of knots and, and ropes and braids, and also the crescent symbol in her hair, the symbol of Diana. Ultimately, the work is considered by the contemporaries as a failure of just mixing these competing desires. It was not seen as elegant enough in its own day. Though it was scandalous and a little tacky, the extreme response that Madame X provoked is not necessarily explained by just these factors. As Cohen notes, mid-century American critic Hilton Kramer noted in 1981 that it wasn't really radical in style for its day, maybe a little odd in coloring and, quote, contrived and self-important, end quote, in pose, but still a comfortable picture. So something else had to be going on here. And Sidlowskis fills in that blank, arguing that issues of performance and gaze are at the heart of this negative reception. She believes that the main problems, quote-unquote problems, were Gautreaux's singularity of style, perceived brazenness, and that her sensuality was linked, sort of, to death and decay. As she says, quote, Sargent's Madame X confounded the conventional tradition, cherished in art history, whereby beauty is linked to immortality, end quote. Gautreaux's use of henna, lavender, paints, pigments, etc., violated the naturalistic goals and boundaries of 19th century makeup. The response was to read it as a symbol or embodiment of disease or ugliness because it was outside the established beauty norms. Part of the issue is that her skin becomes impenetrable looking as a result of the blurring of the skin and makeup tones and boundaries especially in this portrait that made many nervous. The emphasis on Gautreaux's cosmetics, especially on their effects on her skin color, is such a, an important part of this to understand because in the Victorian era, 
it was encouraged to read into another person's skin as a symbol, a signal of their health and of their character. So many of her contemporaries looked at Gautreaux's skin and thought of the toxicity of the paints and pigments used to achieve this bluish violet tone. The extremely white pallor she she managed to create was associated with death or with the rampant at the time tuberculosis or syphilis. So she is by pure appearance, by pure color association, seen as an immoral, possibly dying person. Her portrait stands in contrast to the majority of artists at the time who hinted at blood or blood flow as a means of proving their ability to render life through art. So it also was seen as a failure of Sargent's technical abilities, his quote-unquote primacy as a metaphorical life-giver, in Sidlauskas's words. As much as the portrait could have been maimed for being tacky or for being too revealing, at the end of the day, the main shocker of the portrait of Madame X is that it did not present a timeless, perfect, healthy, fertile, gorgeous, flawless woman. It instead of presenting a woman who, you know, her beauty will outlast her so long as there is art, he instead presents an image of a woman whose beauty dies as quickly as she does. And it was really upsetting to audiences of the day to see such an atypical protagonist and such a unlively central character. There are other reasons she was considered ugly as well, more to do with the compositional choices. One is the pose of her head. As DeYoung says, her refusal to meet the viewer's gaze and sort of haughtiness in that head turn and stance was really not liked by audiences. Sidlauskas agrees, noting that reviews at the time say that her quote-unquote medusin stare is better not met. So this language reveals that self-possession is still iffy, if not entirely outlawed for women at this time. There was also issue taken with her musculature and her body pose. Sidlauskas says that the body position is a little rhythmic through the constant turns, the folds of the fabric, the comparison of strain and relax, especially to the verticality of that table. And that tension in the muscles, the visible tendons, the physical strain and discomfort there, stands in contrast to Gautreaux's reputation for moving effortlessly with grace. That may have been off-putting to viewers. The tension of this final is absent from many preliminary sketches, so it leaves some question as to why Sargent stiffened her up, but it could have something to do with either the tension of their relationship at that point 
or else a different reason. Sid Laskis presents that, quote, Gautreaux's tensed body challenges the entire cultural history of how a woman should pose, end quote, because the audience perceived a more masculine assurance to this pose. She seems so confident and is flexing on him. They did not like that. To give you sort of a long view of the legacy of this work and all of the information I've just dumped on you, in short, the painting is probably still known today mostly because of the controversy it caused and the social questions it raised about women's agency and self-presentation rather than its actual contents or composition. In the immediate aftermath, as soon as critics begin slamming it, Gautreaux and her mom turn on Sargent. Gautreaux's mom comes in and mom's away, asks Sargent to take it out of the salon. He refuses. This creates kind of a situational callback to the rights of the artist versus the rights of the commissioner debate from our morality episode between these two characters. And obviously, in this case, the rights of the artist win out. It stays in the salon. The same Tribune article that I cited earlier claims that Madame Goutreau, the mother, wrote to Sargent the following, quote, All Paris is making fun of my daughter. She is ruined. My people will be forced to defend themselves. She'll die of chagrin, end quote. Gautreaux either gets a little dramatic in order to hammer this point home with Sargent, or else from genuine shame. It's really hard to tell where that line falls, especially since we have nothing in her own words to indicate. Some claim that she never re-entered Paris society for the rest of her life, never recovered from this scandal. De Young, though, thinks that she must have changed her mind by 1891 when Gautreaux commissioned a similarly composed portrait by Corbaugh. Of course, Sargent freaks out about his own reputation, retreats with haste from Paris, never takes such a big risk in his artworks ever again, but unlike his sitter, gains from the fame. In a no-such-thing-as-bad-press example in real life, Florian says, quote, Madame X advertised his ability to paint his sitters in the most flattering and fashionable manner possible, and led to a healthy career in Britain and great esteem in America from the late 1880s onward, end quote. Sargent goes on to do other great and well-known work, including a mural at the Boston Public Library and portraits of fellow American expats. Still, it is not Nothing that this work cost him all his existing and potential French patronage. He makes a few changes to the work later on and goes on with his career, has a successful life, and I just have to take a second. Side note, how unfair is it, once again, even though both were equally involved, The woman faces all the criticism and all the fallout, and here this guy just goes about his life. (sighs) So with those edits, the version we see today, not the original they saw in the 1884 salon. An 1885 photo of the work most obviously reveals the move of the fallen shoulder strap back on top of the shoulder. 
More changes and or findings over the years include that the background tone was originally a blue-green, which is still visible along the frame edges because he didn't take it off to repaint. The tone nowadays is more of a light, neutralish, dusty, brownish rose. High-tech scans have also shown really surprising placement of certain color pigments. XRF scans in particular have been used, and these indicate the presence of various elements to show exactly where certain colored pigments are used in a work beyond what the viewer's eye can see. There's actually a ton of green in the black dress and the reddish hair, and a surprising assignment of the red tone ranges to various body parts. For example, vermilion, which is more of a fiery red, is used in the eyes, nose, lips, bodice, ears, parts of the arms, whereas red lake, which is more of a naturalistic pink, is used throughout the chest and most of the left arm. The portrait eventually finds a home at the Met. Quote, Sargent repainted the shoulder strap and kept the work for over 30 years. When eventually he sold it to the Metropolitan, he commented, quote, I guess it is the best thing I have done, but asked that the museum disguise the sitter's name, end all quotes. The Met article specifies that this quote comes from a 1916 letter offering the sale to Sargent's friend, Edward Robinson, the then director of the museum. And this stipulation of the name change to Madame X in the Met display for a long time was actually a request of the artist himself on the grounds of <laughs> the row that Sargent had, quote, with the lady years ago, end quote, about how her name became negatively attached to the work. The portrait of Madame X leaves us with a few very intriguing and detailed legacies. The first is of the dress. As our earlier discussion indicates, the fashion of the day was a very crucial part of Sargent's portraiture and his pictorial language. So it makes a lot of sense that the Fashion Institute of Technology and also the Sargent exhibition going on at the MFA Boston would be things because they are very real influences on the production that this artist undertook. The dress itself is a black evening gown, sweetheart neckline, velvet bodice, with a long pointed front, and under that, a black satin skirt with a modest bustle. De Jong describes this in depth, saying it was likely made specifically for her, though the small fan in her hand could have been off the rack. Again, DeYoung says this is a totally normal amount of cleavage to show at the time. Black was a popular gown color, but there is a more specific problem, maybe, with how it's worn that also could have explained the outrage. It wasn't simply the style of the dress. DeYoung points to other instances where similar gowns were depicted in highly regarded portraits or raved about in social columns of newspapers of the day. The problem was the combination of the makeup, the slipped strap, and also the design of that specific type of corset called a cuirass. That type of corset made it impossible for Madame X to have been wearing anything underneath that dress in the portrait. 
And that was possibly the most scandalous part, that it was so publicly announced that even in this time past, she had been going commando. Can you imagine? That legacy of the dress specifically is still very alive and well. The silhouette, iconic for its heart neckline, body clinging, small waist style, has been adapted by many famous designers ever since. Olivier Thayskin's wore a version by Rochas in 04. At the 2014 Oscars, Charlize Theron wore a version of the gown by Dior. But the most important legacies of the portrait of Madame X are its connections to women's self-presentation, beauty standards, and the effects of the public reception of one's image. There's the fact of Gautreaux being shamed to the point of leaving the public. It shows us how much judgment was that serious and how much reputations mattered in the Victorian era. It leaves us with a foundational and yet confounding question. How did she go from highly regarded to highly ridiculed? And I guess this has something to do with how we pedestal people. Something to do with the effects of real life versus how one is captured or represented in an image. There's the fascinating line of, of what is appropriate found in how each component of Gautreaux's presentation individually, the skin tone, the dress, the hair, whatever, was acceptable on its own, but combined was considered too much and thus worth ridicule. How much is too much? That's a question we've asked before in a different context, but still very much arises in women's beauty especially today. These issues have direct parallels in our present day. There's canceling and other focused mass mockery or mass criticism outpours. There's the fact that makeup as well as fashion and social trends change daily and commentary on them never ceases. There's also things like dress codes, which put a more tangible limitation on how much of a body is visible, what parts of a body are visible, what is acceptable to be visible of the body. We can also circle back to how Gautreaux was perceived as too masculine or too muscly in order to talk about how though the weight-focused age is largely over, the shape-focused era is very much in. This brings up what levels of fitness, musculature, curviness are considered acceptable, which was as much a question then, I think, as it is now. In some ways, I really hate leaving the episodes on such open-ended questions and not really trying to tackle them myself, but I also don't necessarily want to say that one answer is more right than the other or make you think that one answer is more right than the other. And also, that would be pretty damn boring of me to just ask you a question and answer it myself. But there is a bit of a pro for me in that you keep thinking about what you just heard long after the episode's done, and you're more likely to listen to another episode, so yay! 
But seriously, though, ultimately, the story of Madame Gautreaux's experience with the release of the Madame X portrait, we can learn a whole lot about the way that society treats and evaluates women based on their appearances both then and now. Considering, however, that we are almost 15 whole minutes over my goal episode length, I'm gonna let you go here. I hope you honeys have a wonderful rest of your week, a lovely weekend. Hopefully it is all sunshine and warmth for you guys because it has been nothing but rain and clouds for me. Take care, honeys.